setting boundaries as a way to prevent burnout in education, exercising as a way to grow old gracefully, and how South Dakota looks to solving the shortage of rural lawyers. You're in the moment. I'm Kara Hetland, and today on the program, it's our weekly teacher talk. Gina Benz and Jackie Wilbur talk about the importance of setting boundaries. It's also our weekly conversation with On Call with the Prairie Dog. This week, exploring the topic of exercise and how that becomes a routine. It's simple, just start walking. We'll hear an encore conversation with Craig Johnson and meet Trevor Case, who gets a recap of a Rural Lawyer Symposium. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Kara Hetland, sitting in today for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The news is first. And I'm Kara Hetland, in for Lori Walsh. Last week, the South Dakota Law Review hosted its annual symposium. The symposium sought to put a spotlight on some unsung heroes in the state's rural communities, rural lawyers. Trevor Case is the editor of the South Dakota Law Review and joins me from SDPB's studio at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion. Trevor, thanks so much for coming on the program today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, start. We heard in that newscast uh, uh, a report that just came out about the statewide public defender office uh, proposal, and I'm wondering your reaction to that. Yeah, there was a, some mention of it during the symposium. Uh, obviously a new thing coming up here, but I think it's definitely an issue facing rural communities. One of our judges that we had in on the panels, Judge Bobby Rank, uh, spoke to this a little bit and some of the supply and demand issues that she sees in the rural environment, uh, especially with uh, big cases where lawyers might be conflicted out. Uh, definitely feeling that this will help uh, the small towns, small communities, and small counties across the state. Well, paint me the picture of uh, lawyers in rural South Dakota, for example. Yeah, I mean, a vital role definitely in South Dakota. Uh, being in a small community myself, I've been able to see that firsthand. Um, I'm originally from Webster, South Dakota. Uh, the lawyer in a small community wears many hats. Often they're serving on boards, a school board, county commission board, whatever it might be there, but then also advising the different boards and helping people from everything from their criminal defense to estate planning. And we've seen often in a lot of these small communities where those attorneys go out, it's difficult for the residents of that community to find close legal representation, sometimes having to drive an hour to the nearest attorney. So 10 years ago, uh, South Dakota put together uh, a project rural practice, uh, something that the symposium was celebrating. So tell me what's really taken Tell me what this, this proposal was 10 years ago and how has it worked? Yeah, Project Rural Practice is an initiative that seeks to put attorneys in rural environments, uh, providing a monetary incentive there. South Dakota, 10 years ago, being one of the first in the nation uh, from a legal side to do this. Uh, it's been very effective getting attorneys out into small communities. One of our panelists, Rochelle Norberg from Burke, South Dakota, actually stated that she would not have gone back if it wasn't for this program. So I think that little snippet there just shows you how successful it is. But uh, looking back on it, a lot of good that's become initiating conversations on some of the 
uh, trip ups or trouble areas and how those can be improved going forward. I think it was overall very good discussions over the day and a half. Do you have numbers for actual how many new rural lawyers have, have hung out a shingle, I suppose, uh, in rural areas during the last 10 years? So the project has slots for 32 uh, rural attorneys. Um, and when those attorneys go in, they're in for five years. Um, and then after their five years are done, they drop out of that slot opening for new ones. So I believe all 32 have been filled and now being 10 years in, some of those have dropped off for new programs. I don't have a specific number um, for you on how many have gone through and fully completed uh, the process though. But how many then, if they drop out of the program after five years, stay and continue their practice? Uh, a large majority have. Mm -hmm. um, in some of our panels, we had a few that did not stay and continue. Um, however, most of the time that was for personal reasons that they were dropping out, not because they disliked or weren't finding business in the small communities. Do we find competition with neighboring states? Um, within the rural recruitment, um, not maybe necessarily there. I think we lose some talent um, for those looking to go into like a bigger, more corporate environment, um, being that other states are more populated than South Dakota. Some people leave for that aspect. But I think uh, on the rural side, if anything, we're losing attorneys that are going from a rural environment to a more metropolitan area, not rural to rural in other states. Okay, but how about uh, recruitment for rural lawyers in other states? Is there a competition for that? Are there similar programs in Nebraska or Iowa, for example? There are. Um, North Dakota has the same program. Mm -hmm. Wyoming is seeking to do the same. Um, both states following suit from what we did. I would say since we are, we're on the forefront and still are on the rural attorney side, we're not really losing people to those as our program has been the first and is more established and people turn to that before the others. How about applicants to the law school? I mean, that's where it all begins, right? Yeah, that was definitely um, something we mentioned and was mentioned throughout the symposium is kind of that pipeline approach to get students that are from rural communities thinking about going back and just the education of going into those communities to show students in middle school or high school that a legal career is rewarding and for fulfilling and can be done in the communities in which they live. Do you what, what do you think is next? Uh, we have about 30 seconds or so, but what do you think is next uh, to continue to attract young lawyers or lawyers to the rural areas? I think the biggest next piece will just be an education aspect for those in small towns to show them kind of clearing up the misconceptions people often feel there's not money to be had. That's not the truth. There is money to be had. Rural communities are great places to raise families to have a practice of law. There's mentorship available in small communities, even though they may seem distant. Um, they're still connected to the state and the bar of South Dakota. All right, Trevor Case, I really want to thank you for taking time and coming on the program today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. 
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Kara Hetland, sitting in today for Lori Walsh. And you've probably heard time and time again about the benefits of having a regular exercise routine. But how does exercise become just that, a routine? Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger is our on-call with the Prairie Doc representative today. She's here to talk about exercise, orthopedics, and tips to get moving. She joins me by phone. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Kara. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start. Uh, Very simple. Just start walking. Is it that simple? Yeah. I I mean, I think it can be. This the the essay that I wrote about just starting an exercise program really is born out of a conversation that I have probably almost every day with a patient in my clinic and. A lot of those patients are kind of facing some of the challenges of getting older, um, worrying about decreasing mobility, and probably a lot of them have some physical limitations. Um, so working with them to find what what is feasible that we can do and make part of your routine to try and get your body moving and preserve some of that mobility and muscle mass and all those things that are important as we get older. Is there a time when you get older where you suddenly know Oops, I should have been doing this. I feel like I've probably seen some students who have that, um, that thought that crosses their mind, but it's probably more of a progressive thing for, for most people. Um, and, you know, the limitations that are, are many that people face as far as getting started with exercise, and some of them have to do with, you know, living in a small apartment and really not having access to a good place to do exercise. And so then we have to talk about, okay, what, what, what kind of hallway could you walk in or what could we do that is in your um, apartment from your chair um, and, and talk about that in our clinic rooms. And some of it has to do with physical limitations, you know, bad knees or, um, you know, difficulty with breathing that might limit exercise. So everybody's got those hurdles, but of course, everyone can benefit even from doing something small when it comes to exercise. And it's never too late to start moving. I would say, I would say no. I think, I think movement is good for all of It's just about preserving the function that you have right now, knowing that natural processes that we tend to lose muscle mass and have more difficulty with balance for a variety of reasons. So anything that we can do to slow that process down for ourselves and try to minimize our risk of falling and having injuries is good. And motivation, does that does that come into play? I mean, when I became a grandmother uh, two years ago, I said to myself, you are not going to be the old lady who can't get up off the floor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everyone might encounter something that kind of tips them over the edge to action with this. And that might be different for everyone, certainly kind of facing um, something, something like that, looking at your future, like you're describing is one of those things, or maybe it's a close call with with a health event that might be a driving factor. Um, I think one of the things is the motivation to sort of start. And maybe the more difficult thing is the, what, what motivates you to continue to do it day in and day out. Um, and for that reason, I'm a big advocate of trying to com- combine exercise with something that's social, whether it's walking with a friend or, you know, if, if there's a community center that puts on some exercise, that it, I think just makes people so much more likely to keep going back um, as opposed to doing it all by yourself. 
Um, so if, if, if you have that as a possibility or option, think about it. Yeah, I, I know my mother-in-law uh, out in uh, a rural area. It's her walk to the mailbox and back. That's her. Mm-hmm. Um, that's her exercise. Um, but it's quite a distance uh, from the house to sure. the mailbox mm-hmm. to the road. So, uh, you know, and then she <laughs> stops and reads the mail along the way on the way home. So, great. Yep. And and like I said, so it's, for me, when I'm talking one-on-one with people, it's trying to meet them where they are and what is the day-to-day like and what, what is realistic and what um, are you likely to stick with viewing? And it's, it's okay that that's different for everybody. Um, but you know, the, the, what we're trying to avoid is being real sedentary, especially mm-hmm. as people get older. Well, and you can have really good excuses too, right? Oh, you bet. <laughs> I've got them. Oh, <laughs> let me tell you about my hip. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and those are real, you know, like I said, people have real limitations. So we have to work around those things or we have to try and problem solve. Okay. You know, if, if, if this knee is really the problem and it's affecting your ability to do this, then maybe, maybe we do need to talk about doing something more aggressive to treat this actual thing that's affecting you so functionally. So I'm seeing a lot of, especially in the Sioux Falls, there's a lot of advertisements for uh, like uh, new centers that are just all about stretching. Uh, so mm-hmm. is stretching as important as just exercising? I mean, I think stretching is great. And certainly for, for certain conditions, stretching is a really important part of, um, of that. You know, stretching alone is probably not going to increase strength, um, but it might help you in some aspects of mobility um, and and things like that. I think there are some types of exercise that combine stretching with other things that can help balance a lot. So yoga being one of those things, there's actually some some great papers written about Tai Chi and how it helps people balance. Um, so I think there's a variety of things. I, you know, I think stretching as, as part of something to, to get you moving is still great, um, but I'd want to make sure that you're including something that's a, also sort of functional, weight-bearing, and, and working on keeping the, those muscles um, active as well. And what about those, it's all over Facebook, wall yoga? Wall yoga. I, you know what? You, you're stumping me, Kara, because <laughs> I, that's not on hmm. my I wonder what I've been searching. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I suspect it has to to do with kind of like an assisted yoga, so something that maybe requires Mm -hmm. less balance. And I mean, the the premise sounds great to me. I I would be interested in that. (laughs) Right. Well, I want to thank you uh, so much for your time. On Call with the Prairie Dog airs on Thursday uh, at 7 Central, 6 Mountain, I believe, on South Dakota Public television. So thank you so much, uh, Kelly Evans Hollinger, for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Kara Hetland. Last week, we brought you a few full days devoted to literary celebration, and we talked books with a variety of authors during the 2023 South Dakota Festival of Books. So today, we're keeping the celebration with a replay of one of our favorite author interviews. Craig Johnson is the creator of the beloved fictional character Sheriff Walt Longmire. Craig has written 19 books that will tell Walt's story. 
They're tales of crime and murder, all taking place in a landscape that likely feels familiar to his South Dakota readers. You may have also seen Longmire's story on the screen as the books have been adapted into a successful television series. Johnson joined the show at the beginning of this month to discuss the latest book in the longtime lineup, The Longmire Defense. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation he had with Lori Walsh last fall about what's now the second newest book in the series, Helen Back. Take a listen. I want to talk about place because mm -hmm. you're here in South Dakota. This book happens to be set in Montana, mm -hmm. and of course, Walt is from Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Um, we kind of claim you as our own because you're always at the Deadwood <laughs> Festival of Books. And in Montana, they claim you as their own. And of course, Wyoming has their, <laughs> and probably in Texas and North Dakota and uh, Colorado and anywhere else. Um, but there is a sense that this book could be West River, South Dakota. Talk about place and how you sort of think about geography when you're when you're writing oh, well, I, i'm always you know whenever i think about like state lines i always think there's a good friend of mine uh, charles whiteman who was a, a, a tribal elder in the northern cheyenne tribe like that and he i remember someone asked him about you know the, the the border you know between wyoming and montana one specific spot over near you know the top edge of the bighorn mountains and he said you know i have hunted and i have fished over this entire area and i have never seen that line that they say is there like that you know and so I, I don't really pay that much attention. To me, the West is the West, you know, and so, you know, you're always trying to be as specific as you can be um, in a book and with the characters like that, but then there's a universality, I think, that follows along with that, too. Um, you know, some of those small towns, like at I defy you, like at to be in any one of those three 18 states, like at and be able to tell me exactly which state it is that you're in, because there's a, a quality to the, you know, the contemporary American West that I think, you know, come, comes across in the books and with the characters in each book. <laughs> and this is a Western. It's mm -hmm. a great, I called it a great American Western. It's a crime novel. It's also literary fiction with syntax and craft and emotion <laughs> and, and depth. It's all those things. Thank you. How do you think about genre? Do you care? I mean, do you care what it's late, where it's shelved or? You know, I, I, it's, I'm going to sound like I'm repeating myself in many ways. Like I, I don't pay much attention to genre either. Like that, you know, I mean, those boundaries, an awful lot of time, like at the boundaries that you find, you know, are, are kind of artificial, kind of like state lines. Um, but, you know, in, in the publishing industry, it's much more of a selling point. You know, they really need to kind of like take your book and put it, you know, in one of these genres so that they can sell it. And, you know, obviously, you know, they are their mysteries, like they are their westerns, they are literary fiction, you know, a lot of different things. Like, and I think for me, um, I kind of tend to be a little bit of a, 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 a you know, a, a writing crow. You know, I tend to go, you know, float around out there, mm -hmm. flying around within all those genres. Like, and if I see something shiny that's nice that I want to use, I swoop down and pick it up and bring it back home to that nest that is that book and then use it. Um, I don't think there are any rules. Like, I don't think there should be. Like, that, you know, if you find, you know, the things that, you know, work for you, then you should use them. Um, one of the comments I get an awful lot is, is there's a lot of humor in the books. Like, it, and, you know, yeah. one of the big things I get from a lot of law enforcement people that read the books, the thing that they like the best about the books is the humor. You know, they say, well, you know, there's no way that you can do this kind of a job without a sense of humor. It's more important than a, you know, bulletproof vest. You know, it'll get you through the day like that. And uh, so that's kind of a key element for me. But, you know, the, the, the literary aspects, the descriptive passages, you know, I mean, the depth of character and uh, 
all of that. You know, I think that's just good writing, I hope. And that's, there are two genres. I will, I will concede the point that there are two genres, <laughs> good writing and bad writing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, you, you, you hope that you're doing good writing um, and trying to avoid the bad writing, you know, that, mm. uh, that, that crops up every once in a while. Yeah, so. I was going to ask you about that because, yeah, this is good writing. And one of the pitfalls that writers can fall into is, just very bluntly, you are a white man with female characters, with Native American characters. None of them are sidekicks to Walt Longmire. No. They are fully <laughs> developed, fully realized. They don't need their own book over here because this is their own book. Um, Thank you. And you have avoided... All cliche. Thank you. Did, you. did you like grow into that as an author? Were you paying attention to that from the beginning? Like, how is that possible? As I want, want to ask you, because I, I, I think I was. It's rare. I, it's I, exceedingly rare. Thank you. Look at I, I. You know, for me, like that. You know, it, the characters are always going to be one of the most important aspects of the book, simply because it's going to entertain the thought of like, what is this book going to be? What kind of an effect is it going to have? on these characters, you know, and where is it going to place them, and what kind of changes is it going to have in their lives. I think, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that you can make, I think, with a series is, is when you, you the characters don't evolve. Um, I think you have to have those characters evolve and change over a period of time. And then, of course, you know, you're taking into the possibility that you may alienate your audience in the sense that they don't want those characters to change. They want the same characters every time. But there are enough books out there that, you know, stick with that kind of an idea that, you know, I, I think anybody who wants that can find it. Mm -hmm. um, and with my characters, you know, I find them, you know, even after 18 years, you know, I, I've barely plumbed the depths, you know, in hardly any of these characters like that, just simply because I, I like to think that there's so much there that's so much more, you know, yeah. to go after. And, uh, and that doesn't, you know, just mean Walt. That means Henry. That means Vic. That means Lucian. That means all of those characters, like that there's just so much more there. And, you know, that, that gives them a chance, you know, to breathe, you know, when they come on stage, like at, when they're there, you know, centered um, in each novel. Like, and there is an ebb and a flow, like at also, when you have an ensemble of characters, like at, that's one of the joys of, of writing is, is that, you know, you get to drop some out a little bit and then bring mm -hmm. others in. Um, there are two emails that I get after every book comes <laughs> out. The first one is, you beat up on Walt too much, you need to take it easy on him on the oh. next book. Which is interesting, like that, because that means that people actually believe that Walt's real. They're real, like, yes. He's out yeah. there and I'm, I'm doing needs, terrible things to him. He needs a break, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and break. then the other one is, uh, there, there was not enough of my favorite character. Insert name here. Um, which means, like, I, I, I get the email from people, so there was not enough Henry in the last book, or there wasn't enough Vic, or, you know, there wasn't, I, I knew I'd gotten to a certain point when I started getting emails that said there was not enough dog in the last book. Okay, I was like, really? <laughs> okay, wow. <laughs> so. so let's catch up uh, uh, listeners or viewers who maybe haven't, who don't know who all these people are, and just say that in the beginning of this book, Walt Longmire wakes up, and the only reason he knows he might be Walt Longmire is because there is a hat with his name in the with that name in the sweatband and it fits. Yes. And so and it mostly fits. I mean it's a little cold, right. so it needs some adjustment. Once it warms up, it's perfect. But he fine. does not remember who he is. Right. He spends most of the book learning the interior of his own mind, and so do we. Um, the interior of Walt Longmore's minds could could fill a novel <laughs> and 18 and, okay. and 19 and 20. What did you learn about this character who is, in fact, a sheriff from Montana? Um, Wyoming. Wyoming, yeah. Wyoming <laughs> South Dakota. <laughs> um, 
that you didn't know already. Oh, it was it was a blast. It really yeah. was a joy to write this book. It was fun. It was different. You know, I knew that it was going to be different. Um, and you know, the, it, it it provided a number of challenges as far as the construction was concerned. You know, because basically, you know, it's Walt alone. You know, without mm -hmm. any of his resources that he usually has to work with. I mean, not even just his badge and his you know and his his wallet with his. His, uh, his, his badge in it, like that. But um, you know, the, the, to even know who he is or why he's there, or what his purpose is, you know, I mean, he's got to find out, you know, all of those things, like that, before he can even go further, you know, into this investigation, like that. And uh, and then the fact that you know that something's wrong in this world that he's in. Um, consistently, every time he looks to see what time it is, it's eight seventeen p.m. And every number that comes up, whether it's a seat number in a theater, whether it's a hotel room or whatever, everything is 31, 31, 31. So there are clues that are provided, maybe that he's providing for himself, you know, subconsciously, like to try and give him a, a fighting chance to survive, you know, in this situation. Um, but, you know, the, the one thing that does come across is, through, you know, throughout the book, even though he doesn't know who he is, even if he doesn't know where he is or why he is or any of these things, like that, he does seem to have a moral code. He does seem to have this um, this north star of what is right and what is wrong, like that. And uh, it, it seems to to hold him in good stead in this situation, where the footing is, you know, not not so steady, as far yeah. as that's concerned. And okay. uh, and that was that was an interesting situation to put myself in. The other that you know not a lot of people have noted like that is is that um, there are sequences of the book that don't have Walt in them. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't been the case in 17 previous books. Walt's in every single scene, you know, for 17 years. And all of a sudden, there are scenes that don't have Walt in them anymore. And they're written in third person, which is something unique for me, too. Like that, yeah. because the Walt books are written in first person for a couple of different reasons. The first one being that I think that there's an energy to that type of uh, storytelling. Like, uh, the, the best example I can think of is Call of the Ishmael. Um, you know, sure. you've got an energy that goes with that kind of storytelling. Some of the best stories I've ever heard in my entire life have been first person, where somebody says, you know, let me tell you what happened to me. And that's kind of the way I write the books, almost as if you were sitting in the Busy Bee Cafe and you were to come in and sit down on the stool next to Walt Longmire, and he were to turn to you and say, let me tell you what happened to me last month. Like that. From that yeah. point on, I don't want you to even remember that you're reading a book. Right. I want you to fall into that world and be a part of it. And with this particular book, you know, I kind of broke out of that a little bit with the third person. And, uh, you know, there we've got those characters, you know, that, that are looking desperately to try and find Walt, um, but he's not there. So yeah. it put me in a different place to, to, to write, and I had a, a grand time doing that, too. I gotta... That was Lori Walsh's conversation with author Craig Johnson about Helen Back. Last year's addition to the Walt Longmire book series will have links to Johnson's previous in-the-moment appearances on our website at sdpb.org. Let's take a moment to explore a technical and financial crossroads. U.S. Senator Mike Rounds is a member of the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. He delivered opening remarks at a committee hearing exploring how artificial intelligence could impact financial services. Here are those remarks from last week. They have been lightly edited for time. We stand in the middle of a journey of monumental change. While artificial intelligence, or AI, has been around in various forms for years, Recent advances in the most cutting-edge models have shown us just how capable the technology has become. 
The financial services industry has already been effectively utilizing AI for decades, just under a different name. Whether it's algorithms, modeling, predictive analytics, or data management, the industry has been using AI and other emerging technologies to utilize data and improve the customer experience. Take fraud prevent prevention just as one example. Despite the billions spent to protect institutions and the billions paid to buy off attackers, things are only getting worse with synthetic identity fraud costing banks nearly $50 billion last year. As many as 95% of phony identities go undetected. Traditional methods of fraud detection rely on manual verification and human analysis, which unfortunately have failed to keep up with more sophisticated fraud schemes. By using AI and machine learning, companies can analyze relationships between entities, identify suspicious patterns, and visualize intricate connections revolutionizing fraud detection and investigations. This allows for a more proactive approach where AI is used to prevent fraud before it happens as opposed to the traditional reactive approach to fraud detection. Machine learning and AI have also opened the door to accurate forecasting and prediction. While a number of industries are asking for regulation, the financial services industry is uniquely poised to adapt to emerging technology. In a large number of instances, financial regulation is already technology neutral and outcome based. If a lender uses AI to determine credit worthiness by harnessing data to predict the probability of default, any technology needs to be compliant and fair lending focused. That said, transparency and explainability in decision making, especially where credit is involved, are important areas where Congress may play a role. Lending, al or lending algorithms can't simply exist in a black box and human control is necessary. AI is data dependent. The technology is only as useful as the quality of data that goes into its models. The finance sector is one of the few industries that has been collecting, storing, and protecting verified data for decades making its models some of the most useful. Therefore, it is imperative that we continue to invest in cyber infrastructure to protect these databases. It's critical that we understand how bad actors could abuse AI technology to disrupt our financial system. However, we must always remember that what was illegal before AI remains illegal and individuals abusing technology to carry out illicit activities should and will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. That brings me to the role Congress will play in the regulation of AI. Moving forward, I think it is important that we take a pro-innovative stance, which will allow the United States to keep and attract the best and brightest talent. Although we will have many discussions about the dangers we must also acknowledge that halting progress can be dangerous, especially as our global competitors, such as China, have no intentions of slowing down. Financial regulators should allow Congress to act and resist the urge to overregulate new technology as they run the risk of unintended consequences. We are already seeing this take place in the proposals like the predictive data analytics rule published by the SEC. 
In this attempt to control emerging technology, the proposal would cause current successful uses of the technology to suffer. The U.S. continues to be the birthplace of new innovation in this field. Congress should help shepherd the development of American AI, artificial intelligence that is embodied with key principles to promote confidence and trust, principles which include a right to privacy and transparency. We are at a crossroads. Artificial intelligence is real and it's not going away. We have the opportunity to shape it in a way that reflects the values that are important to us. AI is a tool and it's up to us whether we harness it to make improvements to our financial system or if we simply fall behind. Those were Senator Mike Round's opening remarks at a Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs hearing. The hearing explored how artificial intelligence could help and hurt financial services in the United States. After the break, it's Teacher Talk. We'll dive into a powerful tool to prevent burnout. It's called Boundaries. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Kara Hetland, and it's time for our weekly teacher talk. Lori Walsh talks with the teachers about creating personal boundaries to prevent burnout in the education field. Gina Benz and Jackie Wilbur join us on Tuesdays with research and insight into the teaching profession. Gina Benz has been a teacher in South Dakota for 23 years, and Jackie Wilbur is a faculty member at the University of South Dakota School of Education. Each Teacher Talk conversation you hear on In the Moment has a companion blog, and you can find that online at sdpb.org slash teachertalk. Here's their conversation on boundaries. All right, Gina Benz and Jackie Wilbur are here to talk about boundaries. Sigh. Mm. <laughs> boundaries. <laughs> Gina, this is, ugh, it's so hard. It's so hard, especially when you want to be kind to people and, and you have a, you know, you want to be that servant leader. Um, boundaries can feel so mean, mm-hmm. but, but they're so necessary. Otherwise, you're going to burn out. What burn got out. you thinking of this early in the year, but not early in your career, preventing burnout through boundaries? How did you come to boundaries as being one of the ways to prevent burnout or the key way to preventing burnout? I, uh, I was grading too much. I was grading too many things that the students did. And I was taking it home. And my family was in the other room enjoying time together and I was grading schoolwork. And I knew I needed to set a boundary there. And so I did some research, I did a lot of research about grading practices and found a good boundary with what I will grade and what I will not grade. You know, what is practice Mm -hmm. and what actually needs to be graded. And so it comes down to, I was spending too much time at home doing my schoolwork. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then I I read a book called Boundaries, (laughs) found a podcast all about boundaries yeah. And um, just kept learning and kept practicing it. It doesn't happen overnight. 
I'm constantly yeah. practicing. In fact, just last week I was supervising detention and uh, a student was pushing my boundaries. And actually, that's not even fair to say. The student was looking for boundaries and in ways I'd never encountered while supervising detention. And when I walked away from that situation, at first I was upset with the student and then I thought, nope, I'm actually upset with myself because I didn't set the firm boundaries that mm. I should have set. And now when I supervise detention this week, I'll come in better. Yeah, Jackie, when we talk about um, teacher recruitment, which we've mm -hmm. spoken about before <coughs> on Teacher Talk, and you can find all these conversations on our website at sdpb.org slash teacher talk, so you can go back and read the blog posts and, and then listen to that, that conversation. Um, it's hard to stay in a profession if you're burned out, like not losing people is important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's one of the major things that we talk about with our students. And I remember being spoken to about it when I was going through my teacher preparation program as well. It's you have to have those internal boundaries before you can have external boundaries. You have to decide what's okay for you and what is going to work for you personally in order to maintain the longevity of this program of, of not only the program of teacher preparation but also becoming a teacher and i think that's true in every profession but i think it's especially important in education because you're on so much of the day you know you're answering questions you're giving lessons you're you know performing to a certain degree or at least on is a better way of saying that and so being hydrated being well fed being having had enough sleep getting regular exercise having a stress management program is vital to making it through what's all right with you what are you willing to do eh, that, that hurts <laughs> <laughs> because okay but you know let's go back to this idea of like grading at home you wouldn't necessarily take every teacher and say never take your work home because some people might I mean you might advise against it as a general practice but it is about you realize that you are not okay but some people would say that that's just the part of the, I know in journalism, that's just part of the job. Like if you're not okay with that, then you're in the wrong job. We hear that all the time. As journalists, I am sure teachers hear it even more mm. yes. than we do. And at some point you have to start making those distinctions, but you wanna stay in the job, you wanna stay in the profession, but you want some boundaries. And that's why I can't tell everybody this should be your boundary because yeah. it is it is so individualized according to what your home life is like and just, what your life is like, I guess. I don't even wanna say just your home life. And so for me, I do still take some work home, but I don't do it more than a certain number of hours or yeah. past a certain time. So yeah, it's totally individualized and you have to experiment. Is this boundary gonna work? No, it didn't really work. Okay, let's, let's adjust it here. Boundaries require clear, specific communication that often follows on if you, I will format. Oh, I'm yeah. reading straight from your, um, from your mm -hmm. blog post, Gina. So tell me a little bit about what you mean by that clear, specific communication. Well, I love how Jackie said there's a difference between internal boundaries, which is what I just talked about, and now external boundaries, which okay. I think you're going into. So let's, um, let's go back to detention. If you continue to talk to your neighbor, I will have to ask you to leave. But it could also be in the, f in the family sense, right? We could do this in a lot of different structures. Sure. So in families, uh, if you continue to talk about politics at Thanksgiving, I'm not going to Thanksgiving anymore. 
So you know what? That person can talk about politics as much as they want, but it's going to be what I'm going to do. I'm not making them do anything. It's making it clear what my response will be. Yeah. Jackie, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, I wondered how long I w- we would be on this podcast conversations before I talked about Brene Brown, and it's apparently <laughs> the fourth episode. So, <laughs> um, But Brene Brown really says that boundaries are just articulating what is and is not okay with you. And I think that that is exactly what the, the literature Gina is referring to does. And I think the challenging part, at least for me, is then accepting that if I say what is and is not okay with me, for example, the, the Thanksgiving statement mm-hmm. that Gina just made, then I might actually have to get up and leave at Thanksgiving, right? Or I might actually have to tell this student to leave. And that's always the part that's challenging for me in this profession is to follow through with what I said. Yeah. I had a friend when we had toddlers, all our kids were little and we would always meet at Bagel Boy after, um, you know, to, like the kids would play and we'd eat bagels. And she had two boys. And if the boys got worked up, she would say, you know, if you boys can't handle this, we're going to leave. And then they would leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember being in awe of her because I was like, oh, my gosh, she actually did it. Mm-hmm. And that was also one of my first reflections to say, like, I must not. Why do I think that's unusual? Why is that not something that I'm just like, well, of course she's going to. And that was the beginning of sort of my own looking at my own parenting and saying, am I saying that are, or am I doing what I say we're going to do? Am I being consistent with those boundaries and the way I communicate with my child? There it is again. You're constantly having to reflect on, am I willing to follow through on this or yes. not? And mm-hmm. experimenting and finding that sweet yeah. spot. Am I willing to leave a play date mm-hmm. that, where right. the mothers are really enjoying their company? Yeah. Who, I'm with adults now and now I can't. And she was. And it was very effective for her because mm-hmm. they learned that uh, she meant business. In, in a classroom management scenario, this has to be a key. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, if you... If you don't do your work during the work time, you will have homework. Um, If you don't do your work during the work time, I'm not available to help you right here and now in this classroom. Um, Yeah, always setting what the expectation is, and then you have to inspect what you expect. You can't just set the expectation and then go check email. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. Well, again, you know, if I'm so busy that I'm taking work home, then if I get a free moment while the students are working on something or reading a book, man, it's tempting to go check my email, to grade a paper real quick, to organize something. But no, I, um, I, would, I need to be present with the students. And so yeah. if I am with them, preferably doing what they're doing, but or, or else walking around checking in with them, then I am inspecting what I expect of them. I see. Okay. I'm modeling. Yeah. So Jackie, Mm -hmm. one of the things I want to know is from a collegiality standpoint, I I find a very hard time setting boundaries if a boundary that I set is going to make somebody else's work. Like I'm the first one to throw myself in the street (laughs) if there's there's extra work to be done. I don't want to pass off work to, the monkey is always on my back. Like I'm not a good, I'm not real good at saying that's not my monkey. And I have a lot of help with that. I'm still not good at it. Um, How do you, if you want to be a good colleague to the other teachers and and a committee is coming up and they want you to sign up or there's a, you know, another extra duty that you have to take on, um, how do you communicate that and not dump on the person who doesn't have good boundaries? Yeah, I think 
part of this conversation is also recognizing that, or at least this is one of my boundaries, that I am just in control of those and no one else's. So I'm trying to remember that it's other people's responsibility to say what is and is not okay for them as well. Um, the same way it's my responsibility for me to say what is and is not okay for me. And I think one of the ways I've been practicing do, to, to do that is to really think about my values and where I where my energy, where my values are. Obviously there's parts of any job where it's like, that's my job, I have to do it, whether or not it fully aligns with my values. But on those extra duties, um, on those committees and things like that, I really check, is this following some of the values that I have of teacher recruitment, of uh, teacher burnout or sustainability and stress management? Is this going to, to advance the values that I hold? And if the answer is yes, and I feel the energy and enthusiasm for it, I always say yes to those opportunities. and. Otherwise, if it's an optional thing and it's not resonating with the values that I hold, then I'm going to trust that it will resonate with someone else's values and that if it doesn't, they will be able to uphold their own boundaries of whether or not they can take it on. So Gina, sometimes we, we think about this conversation and it's early in the school year when we're recording this, but there might be somebody who's our, you know, a first year teacher or somebody's got a really difficult classroom and the first part of the year is not their favorite part of the year to, to begin with, but they're already feeling burned out or they're tempted to throw all their boundaries away <laughs> and just get through the first quarter or what have you. If you are in crisis, if you are already feeling burned out mm -hmm. and you're listening to this now, where do you, what's the emergency stop gap in, in education? You can't just call in sick. Um, well, I mean, if you're sick, you can call them sick. But uh, you, what can you do other than just taking a big old pause? Yeah, that's tricky because if you suddenly come to class and you've done a 180 from what you were doing before, yeah. that, that threatens students' sense of safety in the classroom. Not physical safety, but just, you know, tr I guess trust even. Mm -hmm. And so I think you figure out the first boundary you're going to institute. And then you go to the next one. And September is, in my opinion, the hardest month because mm -hmm. you have to set the expectations and you need to be on top of it constantly. And you know what? If you're on top of it in September, maybe even into October, the rest of the months, they go like a well-oiled machine. But you have to <laughs> set the routines and set the expectations. And I, I just want to say that boundaries keep us from developing resentment and bitterness. Mm. You know, yeah. if we have a boundary with a person, it might be hard to say what that boundary is, but ultimately a boundary's job is to preserve a relationship. It does not cut off a relationship. It pre preserves the relationship. Yeah. We had um, the 2022 South Dakota Teacher of the Year, Stephanie Ballard, come speak at the University of South Dakota last year, and she talked so much about burnout and how her fellow teachers were so supportive of her when she reached out, when she felt like she didn't have any more space. Um, and I think what Gina's saying is so absolutely true. Like When you're able to support someone else in their time of need, they flip around and do the same, and because because there's clear boundaries and there isn't resentment about the fact that I did X for you and now you've done Y for me, there's like a lot of gratitude for that exchange. Um, but it was because everyone was okay with what, what each person took on because there was a boundary discussion. Right. Preventing the growth of resentment, angerness and bitterness, preserving the relationship, preserving your health, 
your longevity in your profession and keeping teachers on the job. I mean, it's a win-win. It is. Mm-hmm. And let's go back to families, too. Sometimes yeah. there's hot-button topics in families. Well, maybe we'll set a boundary that we're not going to talk about those things as a family, and that preserves the relationship. Yeah. Well, you can go back and listen to this again and share it with your favorite burned-out buddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sdpb.org slash teacher talk. We look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Lori. Thank you. And that's our show for today. We hope that it served you. Thanks so much to all of our guests this hour. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to learn about this year's Buffalo Roundup. And Dakota political junkie Jonathan Ellis will join us for a discussion. And do you have a favorite banana bread recipe? We'll talk about banana bread tomorrow, too. All of our content is on our website, sdpb.org news. And follow us on Instagram, sdpb underscore news. We'd love to have you follow us. That's it for today. Thanks so much. I'm Kara Hetland. See you tomorrow.